0: Four Corners podcast.
1: Okay, so hello everyone and welcome to the brand new year 2021. It's going to be a very, very interesting one, I'm sure, and we have a very interesting guest to start off. It's Bernard Quayton. He is the head of external affairs for the World Trade Organization. He's been in the role for about 22 years now, so he's got a lot of experience dealing not only internally with the WTO, but also with external players, outside players. So he's a key individual to discuss very important issues issues in relation to trade and what we've seen over 2020 and also what we may experience in the new year and also as the new decade begins. Many people believe that 2020 was the beginning of a new decade. 2021 is actually the beginning of the new new decade, so this is a great chance to speak. So, Bernard, to begin with, thank you for joining us today.
0: Listen it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much.
1: So, could you give us a 40-second breakdown of How has your role changed within the WTO over the 22 years that you've been there and any major disruptances or major things that you feel an investment community may be interested to know about? Because you obviously see as such a crux within the organization and you see many different players and you interact with not only internal staff, but also many other international organizations, businesses, investors, people who want to sell their goods and services. So could you give us a really good insider view into how you see the organization changing over the time you've been there and maybe also where you see it going into the new decade?
0: Thanks, Glusman. I mean, there there are two major things that I've seen change in the 20 years that I've been with the World Trade Organization. The first thing is when I joined them, uh, the organization was under pressure and under criticism, mostly from civil society groups. They were very unfamiliar with the organization and what it stood for and therefore criticized what came out of it or was supposed to come out of it. That has completely changed. There is much less civil society interest, there's much more business interest, and that you know adds to the sort of second change. Uh, the organization has been under fire for quite a long time now. We have not been able to deliver many outcomes of negotiated agreements, whereas the private sector has a growing interest in the organization, has shown a growing interest, has been more you know interactive on these matters. So that, for me, has been the biggest change. Early days, civil society groups criticizing an unknown organization to them, completely reversed. We now have the private sector joining us. Excellent.
1: And do you think, especially now as the new year comes into play, we have many things that could have gone wrong very bad. So, or depending on who you ask, could have gone very wrong and could have left the WTO to really solve a lot of messes, including things like, like Brexit, uh, which luckily you know in the in the eleventh hour, they managed to secure something which uh, resembled a deal which really led them to not use the w t o as a as a place to fight out their international trade disputes. But do you think now, with the u s china trade war with what could have happened with brexit, do you think this is just the beginning of more flare ups in the world? As a nation's, you know, sense of power, the idea that we've developed as a firm, as different nations grow in their economical power and in their ability to attract different businesses to their active consumer markets, do you see more issues coming up in the future? And if so, how do you think the WTO can be a mediator, especially when you have more rising powers who are going to have a bigger voice as the years go on? How does the WTO bring them together and keep them together at the negotiating table as opposed to them saying, you know what, this is not working for us, therefore we're going to use our own ways uh, to solve these disputes, which may not be in the international interest?
0: Uh, I think it's very important to first reiterate that you know the organization was set up to actually not only monitoring trade agreements, not only negotiate further rules and disciplines in the area of trade, but also to provide a territory, an area, a platform, whatever you want to call it, for members to indeed discuss their differences and hopefully find a solution to their problems or differences. Now, that, as much as it has been functioning for a very long time at a very good level and high level, has been deteriorating a little bit in the last few years because we cannot force country members of the organization to come to us and deal with these matters. If you and I would be members of the organisation, uh, we would be bound by a lot of matters. But if, at the end, we decide to have an issue, have an argument, and fight it out outside of the organisation, there's no one going to say, "If you don't do that, we're going to do this or that to you." And that's a little bit of the dilemma we're faced over the last few years. And this is something that, and I'm 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 very careful to speculate, but something that will probably continue in the future, or at least in the short-term future, because there's no real indication that what has happened between countries like the United States, China, European Union, and others will not continue, at least in the very first phase. And with that, I mean, of course, you know this too, uh, as, 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 as a reason, or this has a reason, not just because of uh, friction and tension between these, these members, it also has to do with the economic situation. And, um, you know, where we were going out of the financial crisis, out of the economic crisis that started in 2008, we're kind of thrown back into it because of COVID 19. And as unfortunate as it is for many other more important reasons, it continuously comes back into the discussions we're having. Right now, if you see the most recent predictions, the forecast for certain parts of the world because of the second wave, or some even call it third wave, you know, economies are expecting another hit and what is really scary is that that hit is expected to be slower but longer whereas last year it hit just like that and people are saying we'll get over that right now they say this might actually be prolonged because we just recovered a little bit with the support of many government help you know out of this first sort of like throwdown and now we're getting back yeah. on trade relations between members.
1: That's really interesting you bring that up. When you speak to, because you are in a better position to answer this maybe, but when you speak to private businesses also, as you mentioned, it turned from more the civil space towards more private industry space. Is there a specific way in which the private industry can interact with you? Is it as easy as just, uh, as easy as sort of calling up their representatives in their region to say, listen, we have big concerns over a specific Uh, another member of the World Trade Organization we want you you to to step in? Or is there, or am I mistaken in the way that businesses can actually interact with the WTO? What kind of support and outreach would you be able to give to firms? Um, Especially during a time like this, where COVID has really cut a lot of trade, demand has gone down across the board for every kind of commodity, and also sometimes service imaginable, including oil, gas, and others as well. Uh, Foodstuffs too, because, uh, you know, for because of covid how can businesses approach you how do you how do you have that conversation with businesses when it comes time to these types of crises
0: it's pretty straightforward um uh, and at the same time complicated believe me i'm an international bureaucrat we tend to make things more complicated than they need to be but in terms of interaction with the private sector they um basically come to us, to me, to to, to my territory and say, like, we have an issue, can we discuss it? And that's how things start. But that's at our level. That's at the multilateral level at the international organization. It normally starts at the national level. Um, Don't forget that the World Trade Organization is an intergovernmental organization. That means that all its rules, all its obligations, all the negotiated outcomes are done by governments also signed off by governments. This is not signed off by a private entity or the private sector. Uh, it's verified by parliaments, but the overall area and territory is governmental. And that's been kept like that for the very, same, for the very simple reason that what we're talking about is trade policy, and trade policy of members or countries are set by governments. They're not set by the private sector, not set by civil society. uh, They're not set by by any kind of foundation. No, it's the government that decides on whether a tariff should be 2% or 4%, or where uh, a regulation in the area of financial services should be more burdensome or not. That is all covered under the organization, but it's set by government. So there had to be a way of including the ones that you know, I would say are mostly involved in the area that my organization covers, which is trade, and that's the private sector. I always tell to people, or I say people, I mean, are you trading? Am I trading? No. It's the private sector that actually trades, whether services, goods, it doesn't matter. And because of that, we have to find a way of bringing their views in, not directly at the negotiating table, because I just said, it's an intergovernmental organization, but another way. So we have a variety of communication channels. They could be general, they could be specific, they could be public, they could be private, where we try to receive ideas and views and comments from the private sector, and for that matter, any other entity out there. And the other way around, to bring those views closer to our members, because in a perfect world, I'm telling you, in a perfect world, that wouldn't be necessary. In a perfect world, a, a company or a sector that has a problem right now, there are many companies and many sectors that they go to the government say, you know, I can't get my products into country B because there is a, there is a limitation, there's a rule, there is a technical barrier to trade. Um, can you solve that for me? And then the government goes to the WTO, start discussing it and solves it. That's the ideal world. It doesn't always work like that. Sometimes information makes it to the governmental level. Sometimes it's not. We try to be the neutral honest, and independent broker in that whole process and provide information. Because if you ask someone on the street, do you understand the World Trade Organization? Do you know what it stands for? And do you know how it functions? And you will get 99% of the people saying, I have no idea. The private sector might be a little more advanced than that, but there's still many, as we recently experienced with Brexit, many small or medium-sized companies, they don't know. They don't know the rules of the game. They don't know how to get their issue out there. That's what we try to facilitate. Yeah,
1: yeah, that makes sense. Especially for the SMEs that are growing up across the board across the world, as entrepreneurship takes Absolutely. hold in many different parts of the world, where maybe before, for different reasons, you know, capital restrictions may have been put into place, or just the skill sets necessary to develop to develop specific type of businesses weren't there. As world becomes more you know, informationally globalized, maybe not so you know in terms of trade information globalize more people are now developing different types of businesses to get them involved in the conversation is key also i can imagine the work you do there it probably takes a little bit more effort because the 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 niches of types of businesses and the actual businesses on offer and the products and services on offer are changing as technology changes the business offering and the service offering needs to adapt with the, the complexness of society how do you guys reach out to the SMEs through your government representatives? Is it still difficult to find different uh, ways in because some parts of the world, SMEs are more developed, whereas others are less developed or less transparent? Or what kinds of things do you guys face in that uh, situation? Especially when you guys speak to maybe other kinds of organizations, maybe with the UN or other, or with, with the EU or other kinds of uh, regional political bodies like this. Can you say something about that as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, uh, we are a small, relatively small international organization. We're only based in Geneva, Switzerland. We have about 650 people. So for us to reach out to anybody, you know, outside of the sort of 40 kilometers around Geneva is a challenge. Mm -hmm. And of course, modern tools make it easier. But generally speaking, what we first and foremost do is, as you say, is work with others. Who are better plugged in, whether it's business associations, other international organizations, governments, anyone who can help us to reach out to offer our, you know, I would say our information, our knowledge, we use our sources, and overall, they help us a lot. Once these contacts are established. You know, you sometimes go deeper because there might be a specific issue related to a specific sector uh, within the area of micro, small, and medium enterprises. And then, you know, you may have four or five smaller firms that you're already working with. They can help you. Yeah. I mean, what we generally say is, you know, if you have suggestions, if I would come to you, say, like, do you have suggestions of companies that we should talk to in this particular sector that are not, you know, that are not the the big ones that are not the multinationals. You know, you may have five or 10 or 20 names that we reach out to these people. That's how we build that network. And it, we have to really start from scratch because I don't know how you think about this, but I have always found it amazing that for 15, 20 years or longer that I work in this international environment, uh, both for government, for the European Commission, for WTO, that MSMEs, or and medium, have always been taken for granted. And then suddenly you saw a change in attitude, a change in analysis, a change in resource. And everybody started saying, well, they are responsible for about 90% of our employment
1: exactly,
0: or 90% of our economic activity. And, you know, friend and foe looked at everybody like, why didn't we know this? Yeah. And why didn't we realize ourselves this was so important? So it's a key area, key area to reach out to. A big company doesn't necessarily need our help or support or explanations. They have lawyers, they have experts, they have public affairs people. They concentrate on these matters whenever they need it. They prepare themselves. Uh, but the smaller ones, they really need us. And it's almost like we're calling out. If, you, if you're out there, you know, sure. you know, I'm very easy to reach. We are very easy to approach. <laughs> we have numbers, we have emails. No, sure. And it goes like that, listen. we are laughing. It goes like that. There are people asking you questions literally about a particular product they produce. How do we get this into another market? Or why is this being blocked? Or why is it not working? It's at that level.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And I think you're right in saying that the way that we see it also, Bernard, is that, as you mentioned, the bigger firms have more experience in in dealing with the big international organizations. They have the manpower behind them to have solicitors, to have lawyers, to have representatives, to have uh, specialist trade uh, companies that they bring on board to negotiate with you guys, and also the big banks, the the, the trade finance organization, like the International Trade and Fulfilling uh, Association, for example, have have people on their teams who can then reach out to the WTO or have direct connections with you guys, or direct connections with the countries themselves or the regions themselves. Whereas a small the the the, the, the small company who's who's producing maybe textiles, for example. Uh, they don't have the people on board to reach out. They may not know how far up they can go. But if you have someone who's who's a, who has initiative, who maybe has tenacity, at least now they know from listening to this that it is perhaps a lot easier to reach out to you than they thought possible before. Because I know from experience and speaking to these companies, they really rely on their on their national governments to do the reach out for them, or they have associations mm-hmm. that they they're part of, which then voice their concerns to them. Only because it's more streamlined and it's a lot easier. So then, for you guys, connecting with these uh, trade associations or these industry bodies would be very interesting. For example, I know for a fact because I've been contacted about it. Uh, contacted about it. You know, you know Kazakhstan and Egypt are, are hosting sort of an investment forum in February uh, in Shandor Sheikh because they want to increase investment to both parts of the regions. And um, these things are happening on a macro country level, but the small SMEs are the backbone. Of industry, you know, as Napoleon said, you know, the UK is a nation full of, full of shopkeepers. That sort of still remains true, and it's become more sophisticated. Although he may have meant that as an insult, you know, it's been it's a, it's very true in the fact that small businesses, medium-sized enterprises. When you say medium, they're actually very, very big compared to the big conglomerates. Uh, they still have a big role to to play. In saying that, how then you have obviously SMEs in all parts of the world, but then how does the WTO? interact with nations which are not part of it. You have nations like you know, Iran, Iraq, Libya, even Serbia, who aren't part of the WTO right now, and they have, some of them have accession talks and they're going through the process now. When it comes time to trade disputes now, as we see, for example, when a nation puts on sanctions, like America putting on sanctions on Iran, for example, um, in Sudan also, how, do, how does the WTO interact with those nations who aren't part of that infrastructure? Is there a way they can do so? And what are the pitfalls do you think in that, or maybe is there also a, um, a challenger to the wTO for these parts of the world which aren 't part of it? do they come together themselves, or how do you deal with that issue it's a big question, but try to you know unravel it in your own yeah, way
0: no it's it 's a very good question because i mean I, I think I mentioned this earlier we have one hundred and sixty four members that means we 're pretty big we 're not global we 're not like the u n who has almost every imaginable you know i, I don 't think anybody is not a member of the United nations but we have a very straightforward, the kickoff, I should say, procedure to become a member of the WTO, the accessions procedure, and it's actually nothing more than a prime minister or a president writing to the director general of the organization and asking for his or her country to become a member. That kicks off a process. That process, of course, is complicated. Becoming a member of the WTO is not easy because you need to negotiate your way in, and you'll have 164 member governments that will all look at you and say like, I want this from you, I want that from you, you have to do this. And you may say, I can't do that. No way, I'm not gonna give that to you. It's a negotiation. Yeah. And it can take 50 years, 70 years. Countries like Russia and China yeah. to took, took that kind of amount of time to enter the organization and become a member. Now we have, you know, once that process starts, you're an exceeding member or exceeding government. That's probably better to say. It. We have a division who supports these countries. And they support them in every way possible. Explaining, sending experts, talking to people, sending these days is a bit more difficult, but you know, they sit down with their negotiators, they explain how the agreements work, the details, everything and anything that these countries want to know will offer them. Mm. And throughout the process of accessions, they continuously support them, you know, with technical advice. Of course, not going to negotiate. We're a neutral entity as WTO secretary, the one I represent. But they help them, you know, throughout the process. These countries also come together, you know, the, um, the, the either the exceeding countries or the countries that recently became a member. They realize that they've gone through a process which took them a lot of time and energy, which actually, you know, uh, put them sig- to make sign or put signatures under the contract to join the organization. Mm-hmm. They make commitments. And they have to live up to that. So they share experience. They sometimes share frustrations, like everybody else does. So there's lots of different ways where these countries talk to each other. There's lots of ways that we provide technical assistance, as we call it. We have funding for that, and it's available. You mentioned countries like, like, like Iran, Iraq, and Libya. They're all exceeding members. They therefore get the support. Now, that's the procedural point. That's the actual functional part of, of the process and of the organization as it stands. Obviously, there's politics involved from time to time. That's and fine. that's where sometimes things come to a grinding hole. There are certain accessions that haven't been active for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Why? For reasons of politics. Mm. There's the other way around. There's also countries that were you know, accepted because members our members have to decide by consensus. All of them have to agree if they allow a country to start accession negotiations. Mm. And there were countries that was with a political sensitivity, but the overall attitude among them is like, integrating countries into the world of trade is always better than keeping them out. And that's the most simple way of explaining it. You mentioned sanctions. I mean, anything in relation to sanctions, particularly if it's covered under the UN, or authorized by the United Nations are outside of the coverage of the WTO for the very simple reason that a sanction, by definition, is in conflict with the principles of the organization. We stand for, you know, national open trade, national treatment, most favoured nation treatment. Those are very technical terms, but what they mean is that you can't treat your neighbour different from from your neighbour on the left side, your right neighbour on the left side. Yeah. That the sanctions, by definition, a discrimination or a violation of those principles. And if it's actually authorized in, in another entity, we don't look at that, we don't touch that. Yeah. But there is plenty of, of processes and procedures to obviously make it would be strange if a country that would like to become a member would ask for it, would be authorized and then left alone. How would they learn? Yeah. How would they know? I mean, we are an extra I represent, I work for, I should say. I don't represent our members represent. Yeah. I work for an organization which is complicated and covers highly technical matters. So you can't know this by yourself. Exactly. You need to help exactly. to get you smaller.
1: Exactly. So in saying that, you mentioned you mentioned China, you mentioned Russia, even Saudi Arabia took around 10 years for it to, to join the, the, the club itself. But when China joined in 2001, it saw it saw a mass increase in its GDP, it saw a mass explosion in its production and its exports. You know that could be tied to its accession into the WTO naturally itself, but for a business watching this interview right now, what would you say are the major benefits of actually joining the WTO? What benefits does that give a nation? And how can they exploit it to their best to, to their best potential, just like we saw the nations who have joined it already have done already? How do they take advantage of joining the WTO? And also, um, this that this may not be the case, but are there any other competitors to the WTO? that you see coming from other parts of the world we have for example the world bank as a western institution but then you have you know russia and china also developing their own versions of funding for nations who 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 are who would who would maybe go elsewhere if there was an option and they created that option uh, so these are the two parts i would love some more insights on firstly how best can a nation, and what benefits does the WTO give you? And do you see potentially any competitors to the WTO emerging as the geopolitical situation changes and evolves throughout the world? As your nation's centers of power, as they grow, and become regional, uh, you know, uh, important parts of the world, and they maybe uh, come together with other countries to form coalitions of trade, for example. We see this in in, in the form of, of finance. And, uh, and investment, can we see this also in trade?
0: Those are actually very good questions. I mean, the first one on, on the kind of advantage companies would, would, would get out of, you know, a country being a member of the WTO or if they would invest in a country that is a member of the organization. It's, again, certainty, predictability, clarity. Uh, you then know what you're up to. You also know exactly, you know, how liberal or how protectionist a country is, and in an ideal world, again, you know, everybody would be completely liberal, there would be no tariffs, no barriers, no regulation that would, you know, you know, keep certain people at bay or keep certain trades, you know, to a limit. That doesn't exist, and in my personal view, that probably will never exist. So what you do as an investor, as a as a company that wants to, you know, start a branch, have a subsidiary or invest in a, in a plant in another, you look at the rules and regulations and you look at what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. A very good example is, uh, for example, uh, majority ownership in the area of financial services. Many members of the WTO have explicitly indicated, you know, What they allow for banks, uh, you know, to do? Can they, can they create or establish a joint venture with a national bank or not? Can they have a majority ownership or not? That's the kind of rules that governments bind organizations And once it's bound, you know what you're up to. You go with your competitor. Is not treated differently, which is another very important thing. It's great if you invest a lot of money into a project into another country and then find out that your competitor was treated twice as nice by getting all sorts of advantages whatsoever, you know, you're not going to be happy. That may still happen in other ways and means, but not in the area of trade, trade rules and obligations, we try to have as much coverage. This is the result of negotiations. I want to make that absolutely clear. This is not something that countries just throw on the table. They have been negotiated that they say. If you and I were negotiating two different countries, I would say, Clistman, I really want you to open up the insurance sector in your country, because my insurers want to come to your country and provide these services. And then you say, well, That's fine, but I want this from you. I want your banking sector. That's how it is. This is of course generalized and simplifying, but that's how these negotiations go. And the outcome is, you know, a common denominator, and it's a step-by-step process. But that's the advantage. You know what you're up to. Competition, um, I don't think, I mean, you know, at the risk of sounding arrogant here, which I don't want to, I don't think there's an international organization that does something that we do. There is no competition. You mentioned the World Bank, there are others, they do completely different things. They may focus on trade. They may do uh, analysis of trade and trade policy. They may even use trade policy... Uh, as a as a as a lever or as an as an argument to finance or to support, but they don't deal with you know setting the rules of trade between nations, which is what the WTO does. You mentioned at the very end something which does or which some people see as competition and those are, you know, a couple of countries coming together and creating like a regional trade block. And that growth. And you have, you know, I think all of our members are involved in some kind of bilateral or, as we call it, plurilateral, more than two uh, countries um, uh, in some kind of agreement on, 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 on the way they treat each other's trade. And, of course, the bigger it gets, the more influential it becomes. And there have been recent examples of, of those. And the most recent one is something which is in development, is the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. If that comes into force and comes into play completely, you have a huge trading block which we don't see as competition, but some others people say it is. We see it as testing grounds. These, these bilateral, plurilateral trade negotiations between nations is often where they try out new areas, new rules. Imagine data flow, imagine electronic commerce, imagine corporations for to support of small and medium enterprises. All of that is not covered by the WTO. They are currently talking about it, negotiating, but it's not covered yet. And it's much easier, as you can understand, to come to some sort of agreement between two, three or four countries than it is between 164. So competitive international, intergovernmental organizations, not really. In terms of trading blocks, it's not so much competition, but it is, you know, areas. I used to, I a simple example, because I used to be a trade negotiator myself. A trade negotiator has, you know, 24 hours in a day and she uh, or he has to spend that. And if you spend sixty percent on negotiations in multilateral negotiations like the WTO negotiations, you know, you have forty percent left. If you spend sixty percent of bilateral trade negotiations, you have forty percent left for the multilateral side of things. So I mean, it depends a little bit on the time. So if there's a lot of bilateral negotiations, like you, the UK is a great example. I mean, they are now, out of the European Union, and they are already negotiating concluding deals with other countries, bilateral, on trade. That means their trade negotiators are spending a percentage of their time on these negotiations, and not on what's left. If you want to call that competition, that's competition, for <laughs> so that's time.
1: Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover EU and Brexit uh, in probably one of the, the last sections, since you are a trade negotiator, I'd like to ask you a question for that. But when you look at the issue, which has really—you can call it plagued, or, or you can call it enhanced—the world of trade, depending on how you view it—and that's the phenomenon of the rise of protectionism. Now, this obviously isn't a new thing, um, because if you—if you even go back as far as Alexander Hamilton's idea of, of the infant, um, infant industry theory, where you need to have protectionist measures so that your own industries can grow without competition from outsiders. Um that has been the case which has allowed the UK or the British Empire before to grow to be as big as it was, and then the Americans. And we see this concept of, of uh, protectionism happening in other parts of the world as, again, the nation's centers of power grow. They want to make sure that their industries and their companies uh, can actually compete on an international level, depending on the ambitions of that world, of that world leader. So they then in, uh, enact protection measures to make sure their industries grow and develop, which has obviously knock-on effects internationally for different reasons. But then you have the second kind of protectionism, which is much more apparent in perhaps, I don't want to call them more advanced economies, but more uh, economies which, have, uh, which are more integrated for their national security. So, for example, we noticed that with the U.S. passing in 2018, uh, uh, the FIRMA bill, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's, it's a bill which really restricts investment uh, into the U.S., so for mergers and, mergers and acquisitions, um, on the basis of national security. So they would really uh, do due diligence on the firms and the countries which invest in America and this is really targeted towards China in the sense that they are worried for national security reasons that China is now uh, is sort of merging and, and, and acquiring key companies and key industries in the U.S. So they put in this piece of legislation in 2018 to curb this. The, U, U, the U.K. is also enacting a similar type of legislation, which is going through the process now. Australia is doing the same thing. The EU is doing the same thing as well, off the back of the idea of national security, If this continues to to grow, China is also now putting in their own measures in their mind to to, uh, in line with these other measures that that the United States, the EU and the UK have put into place for the same reasons. Now, national security can no longer, I I don't think, can be defined only by saying you can't buy this type of weapons manufacturer, you can't buy this type of technology company, but security in terms of healthcare, as we see now, managing supply chains for PPE, has become part of a national security measure. This kind of I- ideology of national security is now creeping into other industries. And if we're not careful, we're going to have a very suspicious trade environment where nations will enact these pieces of le- le- legislation with the backing of their allies to say, if we have a homogenous kind of uh, policy, then uh, sort of uh, faux nations or adversary nations or, co- or competitive nations won't be able to then you know, purchase their way through to superiority from the WTO perspective is this becoming uh, more of an issue for you guys across the board or is this right now really being focused on the bigger players which have national security concerns at the forefront of their mind let's say like the US UK EU China Russia perhaps as well Iran also perhaps as well
0: I mean in general terms, uh, national security is, is covered by the agreements under the WTO, and it's mostly there to allow countries, like with sanctions, to, to create an exception or ask for an exception if they consider their national security in one way or another being affected. That's never been really further defined. Uh, and uh, you know, at, at present times, as you rightfully say, there is more reference to national security I think it's it's broadened between the traditional national security also made reference to, um, and I think members that have similar views or similar ideas on what this means to their country, certainly coordinate. We have not really seen that coming to the WTO as such. We have had some dispute cases where national security was involved. And you come back to the very, very first point you made, the WTO was actually set up you know as a platform first and foremost to discuss these issues because everybody realizes you don't have to be a rocket scientist to think like if you talk national security the sensitivities of the matters you are talking about goes up you're not talking about a very specific technical part of a product no this is a very generic issue it's easy becoming or it is often becoming political so if there is a problem Use the WTO if it's related to the trade or if you want to take a measure related, because obviously national security can be there. If there's no trade link, it's not relevant for us. But if there is, and we have seen some examples of that in the past, then that's where you should go. That has not always been the case more recently, and that is a concern. It's not so much a concern to us because we we are we are very careful in speaking about this, but it's a concern if members of the WTO consider certain matters to be outside. Of the coverage of the organization and try to solve it elsewhere if they then start using trade trade policy trade measures as we have seen between two big members you just mentioned you know then it could potentially become an issue i've I've heard a commentator once say what you see right now happening between a country member like the united states and china is like there is no wto they have taken issues outside of the organization and they are trying to settle these matters you know, outside of the, you know, the agreed uh, procedures that we have there to which they side on to. But we can't force them. If they don't want to use the organization, we regret that and we are concerned about it, but they can do it outside. So is it something that will continue? Is it something that concerns us? Obviously, anything that could undermine the function of the organization is of a concern. We are, in a way, the guardians of the agreements, so we, we are concerned. Is it something that we have a say on or control? Absolutely not. Yeah. that should be very very clear yeah, this that is a sense. matter which is really a national matter sure
1: sure i i mentioned that point bernard because we currently are, are writing a white paper on this topic which will be coming out um sort of end of january beginning of february which covers this topic so it was interesting for me to get a point of the of what you say and what your organization represents naturally you need to be on um, partisan, you can't really be on anyone's side because you are there as a mediator between nations. You're the referee, it's sort of the international trade referee, and you do that the best you can. Naturally, you know you have uh, bigger nations with bigger pulling power than others, who then can sway the conversation. But that's natural, no matter what arena you go into, no matter what area of essay. Even if you were, you know, a business dealing with something, you're going to have the bigger players and the smaller players, or the bigger players with the bigger players having their own, you know, dynamics happening within there. Something which I've discussed with Duarte Pedrera, who is the head of trade finance at Crown Agents Bank. We were talking about the, the trade finance deficit, meaning the amount of trade that needs to be financed globally uh, compared to what's actually financed. And the gap is actually $1.5 trillion gap of especially uh, small and medium-sized enterprises who can't get tra- uh, trade finance funding uh, to buy or sell their products uh, for many different reasons. Is this something which is on the WTO's radar, especially when you want to incentivize SMEs uh to, to trade internationally, given that specific banks or lenders are less willing to finance uh businesses which are in higher risk categories or in higher risk nations for anti for, for anti-money laundering or for you know for the KYC um uh capabilities, they may not want to have, or they may not have incentive to you know, um, lend money or to facilitate financing for these smaller organizations. Do you get involved in these kinds of conversations with these lenders uh, at all? And if so, what do these conversations sound like?
0: I, I would actually like say it's the other way around. We get them involved with us. Interestingly, um, uh, this, this this developed as, as a result or during the financial crisis the WTO as an organization was asked to actually become a facilitator of you know, discussions on trade finance, the availability of trade finance, and the access to it, in particular for smaller companies. Why? Because what became very clear over time, and particularly it became very obvious during the crisis, is that there's a lot of trade finance provided by private lenders, by, by, by international public lenders. And there's absolutely no coordination, in particular in the area of trade, and I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but I mean, there's a lot of you know, finance going into, into direct contracts, into direct trade promotion, into actually facilitating those things, which are relevant for WTO. We don't provide money. We don't provide trade finance. We have no real expertise on it, but we are constantly confronted with trade flows, questions from the entities involved in trade, and trade finance became an issue. So... The then Director General Pascal Ami was actually asked to coordinate that. And since then, we, I think, meet twice a year formally and uh, more often informally with the major entities involved in trade finance. And what we do mostly is expose them to these gaps and to the actual problems that traders are facing because they're no longer seen as, as, as guaranteed. Uh, they are not seen or no longer seen as credit worthy. And then we try to basically explain and show people, this is what's happening, what are you doing about it? Are you doing something? Are you doing something? So we play a coordinating role in a way dear to the core function of what the WTO stands for. And that has been very relevant and very supportive, particularly by the private sector. So yeah, we we are very much involved in it, although we don't provide any trade finance ourselves. Sure. Sure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's a very good thing because, as we talked about earlier, SMEs are growing, and they're hungry to expand. And if there are no trade protectionist measures in the markets they want to trade into, they're even more eager to sell into these markets. But sometimes, not in their fault, they may be in, in, in a country where FATF, you know, uh, the international you know body which deals with anti money laundering, says they're in a high risk part of the world. Therefore, investors yes. are less likely to give money to it because how do they know it's actually a business which, which trades you know, these goods and services? Um, they could be involved in, in, in you know, less than legal activity. So it's disheartening to see that many smaller, smaller medium-sized enterprises which want to trade goods, not services as much, Are blocked because there's no incentive from the big traders or the big lenders, financiers to do this, which is why there are some initiatives which uh, Andre Kasterman is involved in. He's he's he's, he's a colleague of mine who is trying to use technology and also uh, technology like uh, the the blockchain technology to allow this and also have family offices um, be involved in trade finance because it's one of the most it's it's one of the least riskiest investments. Uh, compared to other asset classes and uh, it's also for a very short time period as well which allows you know capital to flow and to uh, and to recycle itself which is a great thing in terms Absolutely. of that's something which I think is very important and obviously as blockchain becomes more of a, a technology which is used much more and more so institutionally um, we we'll hopefully see these um, these gaps lessen as time passes we have to see what happens obviously but that's uh, definitely the ambition for many people involved in this industry one of the things i wanted to bring up to you also is you mentioned that you were a trade negotiator in the past and this is probably more interesting to me and those who were involved in the uh, the the, the brexit uh, developments in the uk and the eu what do you think in your mind what were the trade negotiators going through on both sides when coming to a deal like this because if you were just to rely on the media and listen to what they had to say, it was sort of the nation's worst and most favorite telenovela, if you were to see it from that point of view. Every single day, you'd have, uh, you know, statements by, uh, by Jean-Claude Juncker, you, you, you'd have statements by Michel Barnier, you'd have statements by Boris Johnson, by, uh, by many different EU, EU leaders too, you know, saying a few sentences here and there to keep the people enticed, but behind the scenes, the trade negotiators who were who were key, they were sort of the soldiers on the ground, going through this. What were they going through in these trade negotiations? How are these typically structured from the way you see it? Are they sort of all night affairs? Are they Do they get quite heated? Are they very sort of uh, diplomatic? How do someone who isn't really involved in that side of business and a side of the negotiations where you never really see in the forefront because what you'll never get i'm sure you'd agree is you never get a, a negotiator then speak publicly on tv about their experience they're very you know hush hush about it for obvious reasons mm-hmm. from your experience going through this process before what were both sides going through and could you give us some examples of what when you've seen things come out in the news you think these oh, well this is what they're doing now this is what they're going to be stuck on in the future can you give us an insight into that world for our listeners and viewers
0: well, I, I, just, I would be second guessing and it's a while back, but um, let's say the experiences I've had myself uh, as, as a trade negotiator uh, for a large entity like the European Union um, is that it's extremely intense first and foremost, because it's the sheer amount of information you have to deal with on your side as a European representative, because it's you know all the rules and regulation that exist, then you have the member states there is still mixed competence in the area of trade. Don't forget that. Mixed competence. That means, you know, the European Commission has a huge say, but not all say. So there's constant coordination. So you're playing on that side alone at different levels. Constant information exchange, but not everything. Trade negotiators keep their secrets. So, you know, what do you share? What do you not share? When do you share that? And in what way are you sharing? Do you test it first? The information comes from the private sector to an extent because, you know, there's a lot of matters that are directly relevant for them. But that's, that's public influence too. Chlorine chicken, you know, suddenly everybody was talking about yeah. chlorine chicken that was coming to the UK. What are we going to do with that? Um, it are, I mean, in, in, in the startup, and this is why you always get the crisis at the end. In the startup, everybody is just getting information, reading through things, contacting their counterparts. Normally these negotiations, I think, they are very decent. They're not nasty. Uh, the negotiators themselves are not necessarily political. So they're not politicized in their front in of you. They have their instructions. They have their positions. They most of the time know their flexibilities. And when it gets to the core, it becomes political. And then politics and media come into play, and then the pressure starts. That's mm. automatically when you see things disappearing or becoming more, you know, you know, uh, non-transparent, mm. which is, it, it's a logic, you know, yeah, the more yeah. criticism there is mm-hmm. in the newspapers and social media, the less you share, Yeah, and it goes into yeah. all nighters at some point in time, and then the stress comes in, mm. and sometimes mistakes can be made, I'm not saying that they were, yeah. and then things have to go back to the negotiating table, and then you get, i uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I'm saying it anyway, what I've learned very much in the European Union, uh, working first for a member state, my own country of origin, the, the Netherlands, as well as the commission, is that you have these one minute before 12, you know, surprises. Suddenly you think you get it all figured out, and it happens, I think, in every trade negotiations, either on the inside or between the parties involved, and then suddenly raises... The flag says like uh, i'm very sorry but we have a problem with this i need to take this back to the drawing table and <laughs> that's you know that's what the pressure cooker goes up and then sometimes you get frustration you get people getting angry that leaks into the press you know and then you know oh. the leading figures on both sides that's probably what happened you know in mm. in the brexit negotiations too Gosh. you have to add to that you have to add to that that yeah, yeah. There um, there was a, a high level of, of misunderstanding and frustration on the European side on why the United Kingdom decided mm-hmm. to do this and leave yeah. the European yeah. Union. Yeah. And I think with any club, if you have a respected member yeah. that suddenly decides to leave, you're always like, why? Why are you doing this? Yeah. You know, we have a great club. It's not perfect, but it's, you know, it's moving forward. Yeah. That, ha- that, that influences negotiations. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it is. Everything they write about it is true, and sometimes it gets worse. But at the same time, I'm pretty certain. i You should check it with those involved. That you know, after you know, tw- 24 hours or 48 hours of tough negotiations, they can still go to a pub and have a beer together mm. and also laugh about it. That's I mean, team. I That's think certainly in, you know, at the EU UK level, I'm sure that, that happened too. And, and because at the end they have a common target. Yeah, no one. I think friend and foe, you would agree with this too. No one would have benefited from a No Deal. Exactly. No one.
1: Yeah, you're right there. I think. I think the optics. So imagine if if you had a journalist, a curious journalist, taking a picture of both sides having having dinner or having a drink together after the negotiations. That would have been the horrible optics for the actual state situation. I think they'd rather seen as being very divided as both having dinner afterwards. But surely, you know, people are human beings as well, and they they do the best they can with the information with the information, That's what I with think, the information yeah. available for sure.
0: I don't know if it happened. I don't know if it happened, yeah. but I know it used to happen in the past, which yeah. is quite a long time ago. Yeah. Maybe things have changed a little bit. There may been more sensitivity. Yeah. But the bottom line is the human being. Exactly. And they're sitting there and they try to commonly come to a target and a goal. Exactly.
1: That's exactly what, um, what you know, in this journey with uh, Pangea Wire Group as well, when we interact with even business leaders, world leaders, head of NGOs, you know, individuals like yourself with these big international organizations, Uh, you expect, you know, the most pristine, the most sophisticated approach to a problem. And then when you actually speak to some of them, you know, you realize that they are facing real issues in work. And they also may have an issue with their son or daughter at school, and that's taking up their mind too. And, you know, they bring that into the negotiating room, or they bring that into the meeting. And it's a way to humanize the situation as well. I remember, Around this time last year, or beginning of February, I think it was the 11th of February last year, I gave a talk in Helsinki, Finland, to a room full of trade financiers about how geopolitics will impact trade in 2020. Uh, obviously, not knowing COVID was around the corner for Europe, so that really changed the the mm-hmm. game too. But in terms of geopolitics, what that that would mean, and when it came time to the the, the breaks so or for lunch and stuff, I, I would speak to sort of representatives from very big, you know, banks and organizations, and they felt very exacerbated by this whole Brexit process. Not because, you know, Britain wanted to do it, but, you know, the the the, the lethargy that built throughout time and the consistent media depictions of, of what was happening. And actually, this may impact the trade negotiators too, because they realize what is what this negotiation means in terms of how it's represented. And that may impact what's actually spoken about, uh, much so. Do you think that is the case also, where... It's read in the media by these same negotiators who are negotiating. They may laugh at the, the inaccuracies, but they realize that if this is what the people are thinking, then we need to maybe change our position. Is that part of the, the, the thinking or not at all?
0: I, 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 I tend to believe that, you know, and, and, and if you compare public information today with 20 years ago, I mean, everything is out there immediately, you're right in your face and in multiple ways. So you, you you do see, read, hear everything, even mm. if you don't want to, it's almost mm. impossible. Does mm. that influence people? It probably does. Mm. Do people, you know, these are high level professionals. They are the best of, let's not forget, most of these negotiators are really the best of the best. Mm. And um, they know what they are supposed to do, and they know what they're up to. But again, we're all human beings, yeah. and things can come into mind, come into play. It happens in in sports, in industry, in the private sector, in philanthropy. People can make a mistake. Mm. That's why, and that's, I think, a point I just want to reiterate also towards people from the private sector. It's all about checks and balances. If you talk about binding rules, obligations, you know, policy that will actually literally change matters for for, for permanent, that will actually force people to do things differently, You have to make sure that whatever is being put on the table at seven in the evening is verified the next morning Mm. and maybe triple verified before you continue. Mm. And I think this is one of the reasons why trade negotiations take so long, Mm. because it's not like you and I come to, oh, this is a great thing. Do you look at it again? Okay, it's fine. Let's sign it. No, it will be looked at by lawyers. Yeah. By economists, then it will have a, well, a political look. Yeah. So the checks and balances in in the Brexit negotiations must have been there, mm. and it's never a one hundred percent guarantee, but probably a ninety nine or ninety eight percent guarantee that this is really thought through. The same be. happens with WTO. That's why it takes so much time. Yeah. That's why we're all still talking to the business sector. Mm. You're going to have to be patient. This mm. is not going to be negotiated or agreed upon in four or five months. Mm. 164 nations are involved. Mm. Try to even imagine exactly. how that works.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So time
0: sense. versus checks and balances versus complications. The formula comes to then. It takes a long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, naturally. And before we wrap up, then, are there anything? Is there anything else that you think? I mean, we could talk about this for a lot longer, naturally. But for an investor or for a private sector operator or SME, are there any other things that you think are worth you sharing with them when it comes time to working and engaging with the WTO that we haven't covered so far?
0: Maybe, maybe two things. One is um, there is actually a lot going on. There is a a large group of country members of the WTO that are negotiating on newer territories like electronic commerce, Mm -hmm. like uh, micro, small and medium enterprises, investment facilitation. I mean, these are just examples. There is a working group which probably starts negotiating on gender and trade, on how to deal with that in the international world of trade and the international rules and disciplines that the organization. So there's a lot of Matters on the table right now we've been accused of, of not dealing with because we were behind and we are behind the real economy. It's happening right now. So private sector interest, you know, is, is growing, but can go further. So if you mm-hmm. want to know more. The other point uh, is, is the other way around. There seems to be the idea, uh, and I'm generalizing, that we would not be interested in hearing from the experiences Companies of the private sector in general has when they trade, when they enter into trade, or when they trade themselves, on the country, I would like to, and and this is risky, but the more information we can get from people on, on the ground that are trading, the better we are, and the better we are capable of looking at our own rules and see if our rules are, you know, right or not, and. Very recently I spoke to a group of um or an organization and a European organization representing a particular sector and we talked about Brexit and I learned much more from them than they learned from me because they were saying, Well, our members, you know, our traders, our companies, they're on the ground and they're stuck right now because of this and this and this. And it's interesting to see one side of the border it's organized and the other side it's not. Mm. That's information that obviously, again, governments if they would hear this would not like to hear this like. Governments don't tell you everything. Yeah, they are negotiators. They naturally. are naturally saying, you, "We tell you what you need to know, not more."
1: Yeah,
0: we yeah. hear that, and then we hear company information, mm. and we're just better informed. Yeah, and the bottom line is, the more informed you are, the better you function. Mm.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Wonderful, Renatoiten, the head of external relations at the WTO. Thank you so much. And when it comes time to actually contacting you, um, your linkedin is very available for people uh we'll be sharing that on all the platforms are there any other ways that you would like to tell people in order to contact you if they wanted to
0: my email is actually the easiest uh it's i'm I'm on linkedin yes as you know i'm not on any other social media and i certainly won't change that yeah i get enough information as it is but my email is my name bernard.kyton at wto.org awesome. um, it's as simple as it is. It's it's fairly easy to find already. But if people have a particular question that listen to this this podcast, yeah, let them approach you. If they can't directly, they can exactly. probably approach you and yeah, you can. Sure, touch sure, with sure, sure, sure. Well that's we what try we do. Naturally,
1: that's with... what we do as as a business anyway. So for sure. If there's anyone that would like to speak to you, if they want to speak to us first, naturally we'll be able to pass on the information. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, um, Bernard. Well thank you so much for
0: having me.